Hey everyone, a lot has been going on since the last time we released an episode. I hope everyone is getting through this okay. I've really been looking forward to today's episode. Uh, We have Lucy McRae, who works for The Freedom Story. For those who don't know, The Freedom Story is an organization based in the northern region of Thailand known as Chiang Rai, but they're also expanding soon. They provide scholarships, mentorships, and other resources to children who are at risk of being trafficked. So that's a pretty simple description, and I'm going to let Lucy elaborate further in the interview. Um, The Freedom Story also happens to be the organization that we partnered with for our first apparel collaboration, which you can find on our website, boldmovesonly.com. So when I was in my last semester at UC Berkeley, I took a class on human trafficking with Professor Cecilia Moe, one of the best in the game. But I took it because I knew that trafficking was a thing but I didn't know much about it, and it it was pretty tough. And honestly, there were some nights where my homework left me in tears. I knew I wanted to contribute in some way to the fight to combat trafficking when I graduated, so I reached out to a few organizations and ended up getting coffee with the founder of the Freedom Story, Rachel, and then I was lucky enough to start an internship with them soon after. One reason I think this episode is so important is that I really think there's a lack of awareness and understanding to the depths of this issue. It's so much more complicated and prevalent in so many more ways than I believe is commonly known. In Thailand alone, there's an estimated 610,000 people living in modern slavery according to the Global Slavery Index. 60,000 of those are estimated to be children sexually exploited for commercial gain each year. In 2016, they estimated that in the world, 40.3 million men, women, and children were victims of modern slavery on any given day. And these estimates vary from organization to organization, but 40.3 million, that's more than the entire population of California. Speaking of California, this isn't just some problem in a faraway land. 403,000 people are estimated to be living in modern slavery in the United States. It's everywhere. From the clothes you wear, to the metals in your phone, to the coal that was made for steel, to your cup of coffee in the morning, to your chocolate for dessert, to the fruits and vegetables in your fridge. This is not something you should turn a blind eye to, because simply being aware and conscious of where things come from can make a big difference. And maybe it'll inspire you to contribute to this fight in your own way. You'd be surprised how little it can take to make a big impact. Before the interview, I'm going to read a story of a child slave in Thailand from the book Sex Trafficking Inside the Business of Modern Slavery by Siddharth Kara. Um, I recommend this book if you're interested in having a more comprehensive understanding of all of this. And I'm just warning you, this this is a real story, and it's brutal. And if you don't think that you can handle something like this, then skip ahead like 90 seconds and just go straight to the interview. When I was four years old, soldiers came to our village late in the night. They shot people and burned our homes. My mother and I ran into the forest for many days until we came to Thailand. We were hungry, and my mother looked for work. We came to a factory in a town called Sarapi in Chiang Mai district. A Burmese husband and wife owned this factory. We thought we would be safe with them. They said my mother could work and I could be kept with her because I was too young to be on my own. The wife said we must call her Jay, which is a term for a rich woman. Two hundred people worked in her factory. They were all Shan Burmese. 
The next day, we came to the factory and the owners beat me very badly. They pulled out my hair and I was bleeding. They told my mother if she did not work, they would beat me again. They separated me from my mother and also made me work. Even though we worked in the same factory, I never saw my mother. The work was very bad. We woke at four in the morning and worked until one in the morning. I do not remember sleeping. I would separate good fruits from bad fruits. I would mash dry peppers. I would cut bamboo shoots. Every day, a truck came and took the goods to a market in Chiang Mai. I also had to clean the toilets and wipe the spit on the floor from men who chewed betel nut. I was so tired doing this work. I would try to sleep on the staircase for a few minutes when the owners were not watching. We were not given beds, so I slept with my head on one step and my body on the step below. We were also not given food. Sometimes I would go two days without eating, only water. Every night, the owner's wife would make me massage her until she fell asleep. Sometimes I would fall asleep, and if she woke up and found me, she would beat me on the shoulders with a bamboo stick. If she did not like the work I did, she would make me get on my knees and beat me until I fell over. If she found me sleeping on the stairs, she would stab me with scissors in the shoulder until I bled very badly. Even when I was bleeding, she would make me go back to work. I worked in the factory until I was 14 years old. One day, the owner caught me sleeping on the stairs and she stabbed me in the head with scissors. There was so much blood I thought I might die. I was given a bandage and sent back to work, but I was too dizzy. That night I ran away. I wanted to run away before, but I had seen other people try, and the guards always caught them. The owner would pull their fingernails or burn them with torches for punishment. When I escaped, I wanted to call the police, but I did not know how to dial a phone. I found an adult to help me, and he filed a police report. I went to the hospital and was taken to a shelter. They helped me file a court case against the owners. The judge sent the owners to prison for six months and fined them 40,000 ba, about $1,000. They served their sentence and they are back at the market. They are very upset at me and I am afraid they will come after me. When I first came to the shelter, I was very angry. I did not understand why something like this happened to me. I wanted to go to school so badly, but I could not. The owner had three children and they went to school. One was in Bangkok and the other two went to the university in America. I recently met my mother for the first time in many years. She is working in a second factory owned by Jay. I miss my mother, but I cannot see her again because the shelter is worried the owners will find out where I am and they will do harm to me. So I felt it was worth sharing this story because it was stories like these that really made me want to do something and completely change how I live my life. Um, now let's focus on someone who has dedicated her life to fighting the good fight. Also, there's some occasional background noise with someone cutting grass. It's not that bad. Just uh, bear with me. All right, here we go. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah. Relatively great. Good. Are you still in France, you said? Yeah, I'm still in France. Okay, nice. Um, yeah, I'll be here for the time being. I have no idea when I'll be going back, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. Um, it's hard. I think I didn't realize, like, Thailand has done um, really, really well, which I, I wasn't anticipating at all, um, which is, you know, wonderful news. But um, it does bring me to this same sort of strange conclusion that I don't actually know like when I'll be able to go home safely again. <laughs> How has the freedom story been dealing with it? Um, we have been working from home for about eight weeks. So just before about a week or so before the government in Thailand started 
to um, officially like announce things. We had went ahead and said to everybody they should start to work from home. Um, and, you know, a lot of our work is done like face to face. So it's been really hard um, to do that um, like over the internet. Um, talking to students and stuff is, is can be done over the internet, but you just don't get as good of a sense of how people are actually doing. Um, and then talking to the parents is a little harder because a lot of the parents don't like, aren't as familiar with, you know, social media and stuff like that. Um, right. But we have been doing a lot of checking in with people online and then a lot of like taking the time to plan what we might be doing with the situation should it continue for as long as they think maybe it would be continuing. Um, but we've done things like distributing face masks, um, hand gel, alcohol spray to people in the community. We've done some um, cash transfers basically to students in the program who needed kind of emergency funds because they had a part-time job and then they lost it. Um, and then doing like distributions of essential things like rice and shampoo and things like that to some of the students who needed um, support. So, yeah, that's kind of mostly what we've been doing and then helping um, some parents who part, some of whom have lost their jobs and some of whom are just on in planning to do this anyway, but to help them find like sustainable extra sources of income for things like raising chickens or raising fish, which is obviously also helps even if they can't write this minute, sell those things, it helps to decrease their um, expenses. So yeah, that's kind of roughly what we've, what we've been doing in the last little bit, but um, it's hard because we, I would love to be doing more, but we have to be aware of how this, like the situation might continue on for quite some time. So like stewarding right. the resources that we have well, knowing that certainly like it will be a, quite a few months before like students are back to their normal part-time jobs or, you know, parents are back to their normal working situation kind of thing. Right. So, yeah. Um. So before we get further into things, could you uh, just like in your own words, tell us what exactly the Freedom Story is and what your role is with them? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I am Lucy and I work at the Freedom Story. Um, my job title is Director of Strategy. Um, what that really means is I just help with evaluating our programs and planning and figuring out what's working and what's not working and how we might need to adjust our programs um, in order to best meet the needs or the changing situation of trafficking in our in our communities. The Freedom Story is a child trafficking prevention organization. So we've been working in Northern Thailand for the last 12 years to basically stop trafficking at the source um, and prevent it from happening before it happens. There's a lot of different organizations that do a lot of really great work on rescue and aftercare and legal systems but there aren't really that many that um, focus on prevention and uh, focus on the, the real opportunity that you have to really change someone's life and someone's trajectory before they're exploited. So uh, we do that through education by keeping kids in school. We believe that that opens up greater opportunities for them. Um, and we do that through sustainable livelihood support. So helping families who are living in poverty uh, grow vegetables or raise chickens or raise fish um, in order to create supplementary sources of income. And um, then also by teaching people about their rights and teaching people about trafficking and teaching people about the, um, the ways that like a lot of things would contribute to trafficking or risk of trafficking that you might not expect. So 
um, everything from depression to self-care to um, child abuse um, and how to identify and prevent child abuse and those kinds of things. And how did you get into this role? Like, can you roll out a little bit about your personal journey that led you to moving all the way to Thailand and working in the anti-trafficking field? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I grew up moving around quite a bit. So I'm half American, half English, um, and lived in quite a few different countries growing up, but primarily in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and then when I was 16, I first heard about trafficking kind of in probably was around 2008, which was when trafficking was really like exploding onto the international stage um, for the for really like the first time in such a large way. Um, and I was really horrified um, to hear that it was happening. I think like most people, when they hear about it for the first time, you know, I was just totally surprised and had no idea that this was happening. And it was just totally horrifying to me. And I, and I felt like I needed to do something about it. Um, I heard about it from this group called International Justice Mission, and they're um, primarily focusing on legal um, kind of aspects of addressing trafficking. And so I sort of decided that I would become a human rights lawyer. And I like told everybody that that's what I was going to do. And people, adults in my life were kind of like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Like that's you won't end up doing that. But like, that's a nice idea. And I was like really stubborn. And I was like, no, I'm totally going to do it. Um, but they were <laughs> they were right. I realized that human rights law probably wasn't the right track for me. So um, I did an undergrad, just kind of a general undergrad in English literature and history, knowing that that would set me up for a good kind of broader track of whatever I wanted to do after. And then I did a master's in uh, international development at the London School of Economics, which um, I really enjoyed because it gave me a really broad um, basis for how a lot of different things impact trafficking. So everything from poverty to agricultural development, to government policies, to, um, humanitarian emergencies, um, and let me kind of see how that was all unfolding. And then throughout that time when I'd been studying, I had done various different internships in different sectors. I'd done internships in NGOs that were focused on homelessness. Um, I had gone and done an internship with um, International Justice Mission in DC. Um, and I felt like I was really, I was really young. I was graduating with my master's, but I didn't have like any real experience. And I wanted to go and get kind of what's called field experience. And so I applied with, I had to go with IJM to one of their offices and they said, um, how about to Chiang Mai? And I said, I had been to Thailand before and I'd actually been to Chiang Mai before. And I, I said, yeah, that's fine. I was actually like a little disappointed because a lot of people in my program were going to really hard and intense places in the world, like South Sudan and Afghanistan um, to do, you know, relief work. And I was just kind of going to Chiang Mai, which was um, really pretty comfortable on the scale of uh, how things could have been. So it was like a little disappointed. I kind of wanted to go to India or Rwanda or something like that, but I was in Chiang Mai and then I worked with IJM in Chiang Mai for almost two years. Um, and I really enjoyed that their office there focused on child sexual abuse and helping people get citizenship um, in Thailand who are eligible for it. So um, I really enjoyed that, but it was also really uh, intense for me. I found it really emotionally intense to be working only with people who were victims, essentially. Um, and so I started to wonder why nobody really talked about the possibility of preventing these things or what that could look like. And that was when I kind of found Freedom Story. Um, and so moved up to work with Freedom Story in Chiang Rai, which is about four hours away, 
I'm four hours north, and that was almost three years ago. So you've been in Thailand for a total of how long? I've been in Thailand for almost five years. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, the time that's goes long. by really fast. <laughs> so how, how obvious is it to you as someone living there that people are being exploited? That's a, that's a really great question. I was actually chatting to a friend who works at another organization that, that has primarily worked in India and Bangladesh. And she said her CEOs came over to Thailand um, and were really shocked at how obvious it was that that trafficking and, and, and prostitution were happening in Thailand. And I, um, I guess I didn't realize that in Thailand, it is really obvious. I have been to a lot of other countries, but it's, it is particularly obvious in Thailand. If you walk around certain parts of Bangkok at night, you will see ladies on the street. Um, even in Chiang Rai, which is a really a small, very small city or like a large town where I live, there is one part of the downtown area where everybody knows, you know, that's kind of the massage parlors where you can get, you know, special treatment if you want kind of thing. And been walking, I've walked down there with guy friends before and the girls kind of come out in the street and say, oh, you know, come in, come in, come in. And um, so it is, it is, yeah, very obvious. And then I think something that we've seen increasingly with the students we've worked, we work with is a lot of uh, online exploitation. So either people soliciting students for videos or photos um, or students feeling like they have to sell videos and photos of themselves in order to um, make money or bring in money. And do you intervene in that a lot, like online um, things? Yeah, so we would be giving like advice and counseling. Um, a big part of what we do as an organization is mentorship. So providing staff mentors to students um, is really helpful and huge because they often are lacking folks in their life who are familiar with their circumstances, if that makes sense. Like their parents often have maybe a third or fourth grade education, but these students are going on to high school and then even college. And so the parents are struggling to understand the students. Parents are not super familiar with technology and social media. And so don't know how to give advice to their students on how to stay safe. So we do um, both trainings for students and workshops on why it's important to stay safe online, what the dangers are, um, as well as providing kind of direct mentorship um, into those situations and advice, advice giving basically. And um, so when we know that a student has um, sort of risky behavior online, we'll work more closely with them and kind of talk about what the risks are associated with that. And, um, or we've had people, you know, ask students who they've met online to meet up with them in person um, and things like that. So yeah, definitely trying to, uh, to intervene in those situations as much as possible. And then I also saw recently that you intervened when a student attempted to leave for Bangkok. Um, is that something that you're frequently dealing with? And how do you manage those cases when they do occur? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Do we like frequently deal with it? Um, there seem to be periods of time where it happens more than others. Um, in that particular case, and in a case like this, um, really the key to it was that mentorship that I was talking about, the students felt like they were they trusted us enough to kind of talk to us about what they were thinking about. Um, I think because they really see the staff as a source of advice and support, they often will come to staff and say, you know, my family's really out of money or I really want money and I really need money and I have been thinking about doing this. In that particular case, I was a student who had um, disappeared. She had run away from home essentially um, 
but in reality, she had connected with an older, an older person who she considered to be a friend who she had met online and who um, kind of invited her to spend New Year's with a bunch of her friends. And she had picked her up from home and they had gone to this person's house. And, and then that person very suddenly had to go to Bangkok to work with her aunt. Um, and she invited the students and another, another girl that was with them and said, you know, you can come with me. It's good money. Um, it's a lot of fun. You know, we can get on the bus and go together. And so we were able to intervene in that situation. But that was largely because she, the student in, in this story, like felt um, safe talking to our staff and she didn't really feel like she could talk to anybody else. Um, so we work with um, partner organizations when necessary to refer cases on, but as much as possible, we try to intervene before a student takes that, makes that decision or takes that leap to provide um, either extra support that they might need to find a parking job or to find um, you know, financial support that the family needs to make it less of a necessity for them to make that choice or through advice and mentorship to that particular student to encourage them not to make the decision um, to go. So you are teaching these kids like ways they could potentially be exploited and you have human rights workshops. Um, would you say that because it's not really common knowledge like the possibility of being trafficked or? Mm. I would say people, people know about like the entire, they call it kind of working at night. Um, so people know about all the different ways that you might be involved in, you know, working in a bar, working in karaoke, but I think they don't always make the connection that that could happen to them. Um, uh, I think something like 80% of our students have a, a family member or a an extended or immediate family member who has has been either trafficked or um, done sex work, and that, um, but they but the students themselves often don't know, especially if it's a if it's an immediate family member, if it's a parent or a sibling, um, and I think that that's, and so it makes the students feel like it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't happen to them, and I think students often don't necessarily think about. Um, you might think, oh, how do I explain? Basically. In Thailand, to work in sex work, you make a lot more money than you would working in, um, let's say, in a factory or even in like a desk job. And so it can seem like a very easy option to make a lot of money to provide the necessities that your family needs and is relying on you to provide. Um, but they don't think about the risks. They don't think about the um, both in terms of physical risks, but also um, what might happen down the road and how they might end up they might end up trafficked, if that makes sense. So they might kind of, quote unquote, willingly go into it. If they were over 18, you could say that it was sort of willing, willingly go into it, but they would could end up being trafficked down the road um, by having kind of their rights and liberties taken away. Um, I think also people don't know about the many, many things related to trafficking that contribute to risk of trafficking. So one of the ones that's super clear that we often um, hear about is people don't realize that domestic violence um, has negative impacts on the entire family, as well as like they don't always realize that it's even illegal um, or things like mental health issues or depression are, are very um, not at all like well known or understood in Thailand. Um, and even things like child abuse, quite often it is not reported through the legal system. It's kind of just um, done at the village level 
the person who was abused gets money from the abuser. We don't need to involve the police. We don't need to involve the legal system. And then that's, and then the situation is over. Um, the child doesn't necessarily receive counseling or any emotional support because that's um, again, like very, not very well known or understood. And so to raise awareness of the related issues um, is really important. And then last year we got a grant with the US government through USAID to start working with migrant workers um, and to start to educate migrant workers on their rights in Thailand. And that I would say is, is not very well known because it's a totally different system. It's a totally different language. Um, even when they know about their rights, they can't always navigate their, the system on their own um, because they don't speak the language or they don't understand um, what's needed to be able to approach a government office with a complaint, um, for example, or even, you know, a group, uh, unfortunately, it's like we're talking about a group of people who are very, very um, low levels of education, who have very, very low levels of education. So things like, you know, your employer is allowed to take or is supposed to take 5% of your um, salary and give it to the social security office, but people don't understand what 5% of a salary would be and so they end up either having a lot more taken um, and then it's kept by the employers or sometimes the employer just keeps it and doesn't pay and so when an accident happens a lot of times they don't even know that they're eligible for that support or um, they might go to the if they do they might go to the office and find oh my gosh my employer hasn't been paying that entire time so right now i'm not eligible so we help them to file complaints and to follow up with things like that and that's particularly important because you're in northern Thailand, which borders two countries. That's right. So we're right up in the north, the northernmost um, part of Thailand, and we border both Burma and Laos. So there's quite a few migrant workers in Chiang Rai. Hmm. So I've also read that in Thailand, there can be a strict sense of obligation for the youngest daughter of a family to provide support for their parents. Um, I think it's called Bun Kun, Bun Kun. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how to, I don't know how to pronounce it, but how, how does that contribute to exploitation in Thailand? Yeah. Um, so in Thailand, the idea that you would save for your own retirement is a very foreign idea. Um, and so your children are essentially your retirement policy. Um, which in some ways, I know that sounds kind of strange or a little bit intense, but it's actually kind of a, a beautiful thing. Like you sort of, you live with your parents as they get older and you support them. And so in, for, for ties, they think about it, you know, you support your parents the way your parents supported you when you were a child. So um, my coworkers even ask me like, oh, how much money do you send to your parents every month? And I kind of like, well, my parents actually just stopped sending me money. So <laughs> we, I don't do that, but they, and then they kind of are like, oh, but how are they, you know, supporting themselves? So um, so the idea that your children would support your, you and your family is um, really uh, very, very common. What I've mostly seen is the idea that the oldest daughter would be supporting um, the youngest siblings. In Thailand, Thailand is a pretty hierarchical culture in general. And so um, people, so age matters a lot. You always have to ask kind of when you meet somebody if they're older than you or younger than you, if it's not immediately obvious, because that's how you know how to relate to that person, basically. Um, and there's even terms in the language where you call like an older somebody older than you by a certain term and a younger than you by a certain term. So within a family unit, the oldest child is really expected to sacrifice for the younger child. And that is from essentially from when they're born. So things like um, 
you have a candy, if you have two kids and you have a candy bar, you might split it 60, 40 and expect the older child to give 60 or 70% of it to the younger child. And they'll often say, oh, you should sacrifice for your younger sibling because then they'll grow up um, and, and they will, um, you know, they'll be able to grow up strong kind of thing. So in Thailand, um, for, especially for older girls, um, they, um, yeah, really are expected to sacrifice for their younger siblings and to be able to provide for the family. Um, so particularly if the younger siblings are boys, I mean, I think uh, in terms of gender equality, if you look at the numbers, girls in Thailand are enrolled at the same rate as boys. But I do think that girls are still expected to sacrifice more than boys. Um, so you would traditionally expect an older, an oldest girl to, if there was a, if there was kind of a choice to drop out of school, to find a job to send her younger siblings to education. Um, and you do still see that um, pressure on older children, or even when they graduate, you know, children are then expected to sort of start sending money home to, to support their families. And so there is quite a lot of pressure to find a good job um, or to find a job that provides enough money for families. And so what you see is like kids moving to Bangkok or um, particularly, we just started working in a new province in Nan which is another part of Northern Thailand. And we see this cycle of children um, essentially dropping out after middle school um, and either getting involved with drugs or sometimes they get pregnant or they just drop out because parents can't afford to send them to school. Because even though actual school is free, it's the things related to school that you have to pay for, for books and transportation. Or if you live far away from home, you have to pay for like a dorm, um, things like that. And so, the that those added costs really add up when you have more than one child or when you're in a really like dire poverty situation or really close to poverty um and then um you're also if you think about it you're missing out on the money that that child would be making by uh, not being in school by working so you're essentially losing money twice um, and so they're often pulled out of school um, or sometimes they get pregnant or they get involved in drugs um, and then they have the child or they move to Bangkok um, or they have to call them in to Bangkok um, in order to find a job because there's nothing really to do in the really rural villages or nothing that would make enough money for them. They don't have the qualifications to get a job. So they move to Bangkok to work in a factory or um, often are, end, up, end up trafficked. Um, in order to provide the money that they need to send home to their families. So, um, and that's what's really hard about that is there's obviously there's expenses involved in being in a big city. And so the money is not, it, it, it's not what they thought it might be. And eventually over time, families often say that then they stop sending money back home. So it just, it's a really difficult, um, almost a really difficult cycle of growing up in poverty, not being able to afford to stay in school, but without staying in school, you can't, Get the education you need to get a good job to take care of your family and so you end up being trafficked or working in a factory in a very low level paying job and then you um, are not really able to send enough money back home and so then your family continues in that cycle yeah um so, so you talk about how northerners are particularly uneducated like i said like on the website it says that in northern thailand 9.9 percent .9 never attend school 43 percent drop out before attending primary school, uh, girls on average being less educated than boys. I guess you, I guess you kind of answered why that is. Um, 
and how bad it is really. Uh, but why is education so crucial in the prevention of exploitation? Maybe you could elaborate a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, the North has like the highest levels of, um, or I guess the lowest levels, I should say, of education in the country. It also has some of the highest levels of poverty. Um, there's a lot of, you know, in the North where we are anyway, it's all rural poverty. So it's people who are relying either on daily wage labor jobs or on agriculture. Um, and I think, you know, the COVID-19 situation that we're in right now is actually kind of a perfect example of why those kinds of um, jobs are so um, difficult. Like in a normal year, you might be able to make enough money to provide for your family, but like years like this, it's going to be really difficult or a few years ago, we had a really great um, pineapple uh, harvest. And so for people like me, like I was going to the gas station and filling up on gas and they were just giving me bags of pineapple for free. Like that was great. Um, but it was, it's not good for pineapple farmers whose entire income and whose laborers rely on the income from selling those pineapples. So it's just not a reliable um, source of income in Thailand anyway. Um, but I think what we've really seen and, and what our kind of ethos is and how we we got started is just the belief that with an education, children are able to access more choices. If you have the qualifications and if you have the education that you need to get a better job, to get a safer job, to get a job that allows you to work without risk of being exploited, then that's the best possible solution. And education is the best um, and often quickest, although it's not, a, it's not a super quick option, way to get people there. And Thailand is developed enough that having an education really opens up those doors. There are jobs for people to take who have had a good education or who have had some education. Um, because without an education, you really see very few limited, very limited, very few options. Like I said, you maybe can end up um, as a waitress or you might end up in a factory, but then you might find you're really not making enough money. And so you might end up being trafficked into the, into the sex industry or, or working in forced labor. Um, you see that a lot with people who are migrating from Burma and from Laos, working who end up working either being exploited or trafficked in industries like construction or agriculture or um, a huge amount in the in the news in the last few years in the Thai fishing industry. Um, so having very few options, living in very rural, very poor areas, they they migrate to bigger places or to bigger cities in order to take what seems like a very lucrative job, and then they are. Um, exploited. And I do think in addition to education providing the qual qualifications that these students need, it also, they often talk about how it provides the worldview and the understanding that they benefit from as well. Um, and that's kind of something they, they themselves say, but I think that that helps them when considering, you know, critically considering job opportunities, for example, you know, okay, if someone's telling me I can go to Bangkok and make a lot of money and it's very easy and, but they're not really giving me any details, then I can probably kind of figure out what that might actually mean um, right. as opposed to people with less opportunity and less education might hear about that and think that, oh, that sounds like a great opportunity to be able to provide for and support my family. So that's what we, we really strongly believe that, you know, education opens up opportunities um, for children and, and opportunity provides dignity and it provides hope and it provides um, just other choices for them. It opens up choices for them really that they might not otherwise have. So I'm also curious about the role that religion plays in exploitation in Thailand. Uh, from, from what I've read, some Thai people can uh, 
almost reconcile themselves to inequality through Buddhism as the only way to be reborn into better shoes is to accept their position in life dutifully and to accrue positive karma, even if that position is slavery. Um, could you maybe talk about the significance of that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm always hesitant to kind of say that Buddhism is, you know, responsible for all of, of trafficking. Cause I think that that was a, that was something that a lot of people in the anti-trafficking industry or sector said for quite some time, but I do think, um, it does play a part. I think particularly when you think about Thailand is I think 98% Buddhist. And so for, to separate Buddhism, you can't separate Buddhism and Thai culture. They're essentially synonymous. Um, and a lot of that even goes back to what I mentioned earlier about people, about it being a hierarchical culture. Um, you know, that comes from partially from Buddhism. Um, the idea that there are people who are like going to be above you and below you and, um, you have to be kind of respectful of them and respectful of your place in that um, hierarchy kind of thing. Um, so from my understanding, anyway, the belief is you're born and, you know, you've done something in a previous life to be born into the situation that you're born in. And so for people who are living in poverty, um, I, like you said, I think that does often mean that they believe that they have somehow kind of merited being in that position. They've done something to put themselves in that position. Um, and so um, I think that that can be really hard to break out of that mindset. It's very different from if you think about kind of the American dream where you can pull yourself up and you can improve your situation. That's definitely not um, the belief, the widespread belief here that you, if you work hard enough, you can move up to a different um, socioeconomic class because what you're born... Takes a bit more time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, lifetimes. it doesn't really work in America anyway, right? But yeah, here it it certainly would take a few lifetimes and it would have to be done with good, with good deeds. Um, and I think some of that can involve that kind of taking care of and providing for your family. Um, but what you, what happens to you is somehow the result of what you've done in, in the, in the past, if that makes sense. And so the idea that you would not just accept it is, is very foreign. Um, and so, I think people are a little resigned to their circumstances. Right. Yeah. Um, so can you also explain what statelessness is and why it's such a risk factor for trafficking? Yeah, yeah. I think I touched on this earlier, so sorry for not explaining it fully, but um, statelessness is a phenomenon that happens around the world. There's around 12 million, I think, currently people who are stateless. So to be stateless basically means you don't have a state or a country that claims you. Um, and if we think about the fact that all of our rights are guaranteed by the countries that we are citizens of, then that means you have no country that is guaranteeing your rights. Um, in Thailand, uh, basically, there are ethnic minority groups that have um, moved into Thailand from other parts of Asia hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So they might have moved from Tibet or southern China into the mountainous region throughout Southeast Asia. Really, a lot of these groups are, are seen in many different parts of Southeast Asia, um, but they're the same ethnic groups. They speak the same language amongst the group, regardless of what country that they live in. Um, and they settled in the mountains, basically in northern Thailand. Um, and for a very long time, they were basically just considered highland people and ethnic ties. Um, it was kind of like, okay, you guys stay in the mountains and we will stay 
here and we won't bother you and you won't bother us. And that was um, a, pretty much how it went until around 50 or 60 years ago when infrastructure started to improve, um, Thailand started to develop, you know, people started essentially connecting roads up to the mountains and mountain people or these ethnic minority groups, um, which are also called hill tribes, started moving into the cities to find work or to integrate into society. And so the government realized they were going to have to set up a system to figure out which of these groups were going to be eligible for citizenship because a lot of these groups also exist in places like Burma or in Laos and people were trying to migrate to Thailand. Um, and so how do you, how do you differentiate between a migrant and, and someone who is um, legitimately eligible for citizenship? Um, but I think unfortunately there's been um, a lot of, um, what's the word, a lot of like bias and a lot of um, prejudice against these ethnic minority people. They are generally more poor. They are generally less educated. Um, they do speak uh, entirely unique and completely different languages from Thai and also from each other. Um, and they have completely different cultures. Um, you know, in Thai culture, like what you mentioned earlier, the youngest girls are supposed to care for the parents um, when they get older, when they, um, but in some of these hill tribe cultures, it's the youngest boy, for example. So that's quite a big difference for, for people in this country. And, um, and Thailand is overwhelmingly ethnically Thai as well. So it's sort of similar to China where there's really one ethnic group and a small handful of, of ethnic minorities. And so Thai people who are ethnically Thai really consider themselves Thai. And there are, there are people who would not consider hill tribe people um, Thai, if that makes sense. Whereas opposed to America, if you're born in America, for example, you, you can claim American citizenship. That's not, um, that's not true in Thailand. And the idea that your citizenship would be based on um, nationality as opposed to your blood is not, is not really uh, common in Thailand, I guess. Um, so the process to gain, so, so sorry. So going back to hill tribe people 50 or 60 years ago, they were sort of having their children in these mountain villages, raising their children in mountain villages and not really needing to interact with either the Thai government or Thai people uh, a whole lot until they started to move down into the, into the cities. And so, um, you know, they don't have, they didn't have children in hospitals. These children didn't have birth certificates. It was really difficult to identify who was eligible and who wasn't. Um, and so um, the government started to set up processes to figure out who was and wasn't eligible, but those processes are really complicated um, and they're very detailed. And it's, it's actually really case by case. It depends on where you're born, when you were born, what kind of status your parents have um, and uh, what uh, ethnicity you are basically. So it's kind of a combination of all of those things. Um, and so for a person to get citizenship is a really long and lengthy process. We actually had one of our students get citizenship earlier this year, and that was huge. Um, I think it was, he was either the first or maybe the second student to get citizenship um, with us in 12 years. And there are people wow. who wait 10 or 14 years to get citizenship. The process is legally supposed to only take 90 days, but um, because of kind of, I think, prejudice. There's also a pretty strong lack of incentive for your local government official to approve citizenship because if they approve someone who's not actually eligible for whatever reason, um, they will lose their job. But if they don't approve anybody, then there's not really a punishment for them. Um, so all that to say, um, 
one of the impacts of being stateless in Thailand or some of the impacts are that you can't own land, you can't own a home. So that means if you are anywhere you're living, you're squatting, anywhere that you're cultivating something, you're squatting, um, you are not eligible for scholarships or loans from the government. So particularly when students want to go to university, it's very difficult for them to be able to afford it because they essentially have to fund it themselves. Um, and you're also not eligible to the same level of healthcare. Uh, Thailand has a pretty good universal healthcare system. And, um, but if you are not a Thai citizenship or a Thai citizen, excuse me, you're not eligible. So they would have to pay the same amount for healthcare as I would, um, as a, you know, a complete foreigner. Um, and they are really viewed as, um, as foreigners um, in Thailand, despite the fact that they might be eligible for citizenship and their families might've lived here for, for hundreds of years. So um, it really increases your risk of trafficking because you have a much, you have much more limited options in terms of what you can pursue for your education. You have much more limited rights. You don't have a, even like freedom of movement. So just a few years, they changed the law so you can move within the, the province or the state where you work or live, but not within between states basically um, so you could live and work in Chiang Rai but you couldn't go down and, and live and work in Chiang Mai um, you can get special permission to go for seven days but after that you have to come back so um, it's really it's really hard but it really puts people more at risk it also makes it um, harder to track people down if they if they do end up being trafficked depending on what kind of status that they have um, and so yeah it's a, it's a much greater risk of trafficking but it's something that a lot of people in the West struggle to understand because it doesn't really happen very much, um, but certainly um, happens quite a bit here in Thailand, particularly, like you said, in the North, where we have um, a really high number of ethnic minority groups. Right. Instinctively, people know that this is a thing, um, but I guess it's scary to look under the hood and, and see what's really there and kind of get into it and really understand something like the impact that statelessness has but what like what's the best way to get people to really open up their eyes and and want to understand what's going on not just in thailand but all over the world mm. wow very very good question um you know i really think that people connect with with other people right so like you connect with stories or you connect with someone that you meet or um something like that. Another thing that um, Freedom Story is really involved with is uh, the ethical storytelling movement. So that is really was kind of started by us, but it's really a community um, of people that are committed to telling more ethical and better stories in the NGO space. So moving away from really simplistic narratives um, or what I call kind of pity-based marketing. So um, a sad picture of a small child um, in a mail out and then kind of, you know, if you give $10, you can support children like, you know, insert any here and then um, people are moved by those kinds of things, but, um, and they often do result in um, funds being raised, but I think people, the level of deep engagement and understanding of that issue is probably lessened. Um, so I really strongly believe that you can tell complex stories that really show the variety of ways that people are being impacted by their circumstances or that people are at risk of trafficking um, and that people at home or supporters have the ability to engage with that. Not everybody, not all the time by any stretch, but I think that really is a way that you can help people to understand the issue you're working on more because 
Um, I know I've heard a lot of people say, oh, you know, the average person has 30 seconds or a minute and a half to read a story from an NGO. But I think if you really are wanting to learn more about a topic or wanting to engage in something, then you're willing to kind of put more time and more effort into it than that. Um, and so we really try to share stories themselves that are a little more complex, but also try to share a variety of stories that show how students are um, at risk of trafficking because for one student, it might be statelessness and poverty, but for another student, it might be, you know, abuse and poverty and a family member who was trafficked that really put them at risk. And so trying to share those different stories, but also really focusing on what we focus on is how the students themselves have worked really hard to, to overcome their own circumstances um, because we support them and, you know, we want to provide the best opportunities we can for them. But uh, realistically, they are the ones who go to school. They're the ones who do their homework. They're the ones who really um, work hard to make uh, their dreams a reality. But to answer your question in a short way, I really think that telling stories um, is what people connect to and um, hearing stories of, of other people, that universal human um, connection idea, um, the idea that maybe something your kids are, are struggling with is something that kids here are struggling with or you might have struggled with something in the past that a student here is struggling with as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so how little does it take to make an impact and what can my listeners do to help? Yeah. Um, sounds like an NGO cliche, but really every, everything makes an impact. Um, we have, you know, we're talking about a community that really is living on very, very little. Sometimes they have an income of a thousand dollars for the whole year. Um, and so everything that you can do or give to support makes a huge impact. Um, we have, you know, a really obviously wide number of ways people can get involved from giving one off or even joining, we call it our freedom chapter, which helps to support our scholarship students to getting involved in um, volunteering um, or raising awareness, talking to your senators um, and congressmen, congresswomen, um, or even just educating yourself. I think our website has a pretty good reading list of things that people can read to kind of get more knowledge. Um, because when you understand something more than you will know how you would like to get involved more, I think. And even if the issue that people are passionate about isn't trafficking, then I think finding whatever it is that you are passionate about, because um, there's any number of, of issues in the world that people can get involved with, but find a way to find what you're passionate about, basically what cause you're passionate about. And then my advice would be to find a way to get involved that is um, like sustainable and fun and joyful. So that might look like donating to an organization um, that you feel like they're doing really good work in one area, but also maybe volunteering with that same organization or in a different organization. Because I know, for example, for Freedom Story, we have a pretty limited capacity for volunteers, but um, there's a num great number of other organizations that can do a lot with local volunteers. So find something you're passionate about and then commit to, to it in a way that's both sustainable for you in terms of your time or your finances or your energy. And then it's also, it's also fun. That kind of answers my last question also, but... Um... <laughs> I kind of I just want to end on having some advice from you to somebody who is really passionate about making change but just doesn't know where to begin. Yeah. Really great question also. 
Um, I think don't be like, don't be afraid. I don't know. That's such a cliche answer, but, um, you know, I think we often are afraid that what we're doing isn't going to be enough or the impact we make won't be enough, but individually, us as individuals, it's hard to see the impact you're making, but if you bring a bunch of individuals together, then the impact you see is much greater. Um, and I think whenever I get kind of lost in the haze of the fact that there's, you know, 40 million people who are enslaved in the world right now, and we're only helping, you know, however many number of students or however many number of people in Thailand, and are we doing enough and could we be doing more? Focusing on stories of, of the people you are impacting. So go back to the, the student that you know is now in school who wouldn't be otherwise because of what you're doing. Or, um, you know, a student who has gotten the support that they need after being abused and neglected who might not have had that support otherwise. How you're making an impact on the, in the individual level, I think is, is really what keeps me going. But if you are wanting to make an impact and you don't really know how, I would say definitely do your research, find a group or an organization, or if you can't find one, you know, start one. Um, and, and get involved, ask them how, how they can, how you can support them. Ask good questions. Don't be afraid to ask like hard questions because um, organizations love to have people who are really committed and who are willing to engage in the, in the hard stuff, I think is, is my experience anyway. Um, but don't be afraid that you're not doing enough or that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be very much to support or it wouldn't be enough. Um, and I think don't be afraid of, um, I guess just like, don't be afraid of missing out is kind of trite, but like not everybody has to like up and move to a different country to make a big difference. Um, you can make a difference in your local community and you can make a difference um, internationally through the way that you support an organization. Um, just don't be afraid that you're gonna miss out on sort of a normal, a normal life just because of the mistake or the choices that you've made rather. So for me, that looks kind of like realizing that I've spent five years of my 20s in Thailand and my life would look really different if I'd spent those five years in a different country or doing something different, but I'm, I'm not worried about the fact that I, I don't own a house or, um, you know, I don't, I don't own a car or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on the fact that I'm doing what I think is right and, and is what I make, what's making a difference um, in my life and then and hopefully for the organization that I'm working for and that I believe in and, and in the communities we're working in. So don't feel like you have to hold yourself to the standard of other people um, just because that's kind of the way that we've formulated the world at the moment. <laughs> um, and don't be afraid that what you're doing is too little or and not enough. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you a lot for taking some time to do this. No problem. Thank you. This was really fun. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, stay safe, and hopefully everything goes back to normal relatively soon. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you, Jason. You too. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you to Lucy for joining us, and thanks to all of you for listening. I really hope you got something out of that. This will not be the last time we will be highlighting this problem. You can contribute directly to The Freedom Story. Just go to their website at thefreedomstory.org or if you still haven't gotten the freedom tea, you can snag one at boldmovesonly.com and 20% will be going to them. We've been working hard, so stay tuned for some announcements and new stuff at BMO. And thanks a lot and we'll be back with you very soon. Bye.